Good morning. It is so good to be back in the house of the Lord this morning, and it is good to be able to be with you. And uh, I want to uh, welcome you again to our live stream services here at Ivy Creek Baptist Church. We are grateful that you have joined us. And as Pastor Ted uh, said earlier, I am very grateful and want to wish all of you mothers out there a very happy Mother's Day today. Uh, I want to celebrate you. I want to uh, be able to celebrate all of the godly women who uh, make an impact not only on my life, but also on the lives of all of the rest of our church family. Uh, I, I want to just be able to say thank you. I want to thank you for uh, the love that you show. I want to thank you for the faithfulness uh, that you continue to demonstrate for your commitment uh, to sow the seeds of the gospel. Uh, in the lives not only of children, but of adults like me. I want to thank you for uh, the sacrifices that you make uh, and then continue to make. I want to thank you uh, for the example that you set uh, for others to be able to follow as they seek to emulate Christ in their lives. And so uh, I, I want to thank moms, but I want to thank just godly Christian women all over our congregation who, who continually invest in the life of, of our families in this church. And I just hope that today you will be able to experience the peace of God, which passes all understanding. And I pray that you will feel the love of those who, like myself, uh, want to just show appreciation to you for the glory of Christ. And it is the glory of Christ that I want us to be able to consider and focus our attention this morning. So if you have your Bibles with you, and I certainly hope that you do. Would you please take them and turn with me once again to the Gospel of John and to chapter 13. John chapter 13. We are going to continue in our series that we began a, a couple of weeks ago entitled Lessons from the Upper Room. And we're going to pick up with Jesus talking to the 11 remaining disciples who were with him and reclining around the table with him there in the upper room. You'll recall from our study last week that Jesus had unmasked Judas as his betrayer. Well, at least John and possibly Peter knew that Judas was a traitor. It doesn't appear necessarily that all the rest of the other disciples recognized uh, that fact yet, but Jesus did. And, and Jesus, being fully understanding of what Judas was going to do, sent Judas out, told him to go ahead and do what it was that he had purposed in his heart to do, and so Judas did. He left the upper room and according to verse 30, he went out into the darkness of night in order to portray the Lord Jesus. And as we'll see, Judas, his, ex, his exit there seems to have lightened the mood in the upper room. It's almost as if with his departure, there was a breath of fresh air that blew into that place. And, and the brightened mood actually caused Jesus to begin to speak more freely. Uh, concerning some very important things that he wanted to be able to communicate to his disciples prior to his crucifixion. In fact, many scholars point to this section as the official introduction to the farewell discourse. In these final verses of John chapter 13, Jesus touches on many subjects that he will come back and address more fully in chapters 14, 15, and 16. And as we're going to read in just a few moments, Jesus introduces the subject of his death. He introduces the subject of his imminent departure. He goes on to talk about commanding his disciples to love one another, and he will discuss that later. 
And then in this interchange between him and Peter that occurs at the very end of the chapter, we're introduced to the necessity that his disciples will have to depend upon the power of the Holy Spirit, not upon themselves if they hope to be able to live faithful and obedient lives. Now, as I said, all of, of these subjects that are introduced here in the, the last part of chapter 13 will be developed further in the conversations that Jesus has with his disciples uh, in the final hours before his arrest and before his crucifixion. And all of this comes in the context of his glory. In fact, the word to glorify is used five times in the first two verses of our text. And the subject of Christ's glory really dominates this entire section. And it is through the lens of, of Christ's glory that I want us to examine this passage today. So let's read it together, beginning in verse 31 of John chapter 13 through the end of the chapter. Hear the word of God. So when he, that is Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, I say, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. And Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, on days like today when we come outside and there's a crispness in the air and the, the sun is, is bright and the skies are blue and the birds are chirping, we are, our hearts just lift naturally to you, to, to thank you and to, to bless your name for the creation of such a beautiful day. And truly, Lord, it is a beautiful day, and we are grateful that you have blessed us with it. But I'm also reminded that you are the same God who exists when the, the sun is shining brightly and the skies are blue. You're the same God that is still there when there's darkened clouds and, and there's forecast of rain and, and thunder rolls in the distance. It, 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 it does not matter what circumstances that we face in our life. You are still God and you still love us and you have displayed that love by the giving of your son, our savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to die for our sins, that we might be pardoned from our sins. And so we come before you this morning wanting to glorify you and to give you honor and to give you praise for the way that you have loved us and for who you are. So I pray that that would happen today as we delve into your word and as we examine it and as we, we chew on it, I pray that, that everything that we are able to digest today will bring glory and honor to you. This is my prayer and I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. 
as I mentioned, the overarching theme of this section is the glory of Christ. And, and that theme makes sense when we actually consider that what Jesus says to the 11 remaining disciples that are still with him, reclining around the table with him and there in the upper room, really everything he says to them comes on the heels of what he had most previously said in public to the crowds that had gathered around him. Back in chapter 12, just prior to, to, to going here into the upper room, John records that Jesus had made his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem and he had begun to teach publicly with surrounded by all the people. And in John chapter 12, beginning in verse 23, we read these words. Jesus says, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And then he goes on, he says in verse 27, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, he says. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. And he follows that up with, Father, glorify your name. And suddenly a voice came out of heaven and said to him, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. And then in verse 30, Jesus said, this voice did not come because of me, but he tells the crowd it came for your sake. And then he says in verse 32, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. And John tells us in verse 33, this he said, signifying by what death he would die. Now, this obviously, this statement by Jesus in the public community caused great confusion at large. So it's logical that Jesus would take up this same subject now that he's gathered in the upper room and he's alone with his 11 disciples. He, he takes this subject back up again and he begins to speak of his own glory and he begins to speak of the glory that God the Father would have. In fact, if you read the end of chapter 12 in conjunction with this passage here in chapter 13, you come away recognizing the reciprocal glory that Jesus had with the Father, that Jesus gave glory to the Father and the Father gave glory to Christ. And I want us to consider the verb to glorify because I mentioned it, it occurs five times there in those first two verses. And, and the word glorify in the Greek has its root word doxa. It's the same word from which we derive our word doxology. Now, for those of you who grew up in a church like I did, we used to sing the doxology every Sunday morning. And, and if, you, if you know those words, they're ingrained in you. You know what the doxology means. It means to praise because the words of the song were praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. So, so the word doxa, to glorify, means to, to bring praise, to give praise to. It means to exalt. It means to, to lift up, to increase the fame of, to, to honor, to magnify. Now, as I mentioned, this verb occurs five times. The first three times that it occurs, it's translated in our English versions in the present tense. And then the last two times, it's translated in the future tense. I want us to consider, first of all, the present tense use of that word to glorify. And when we do, we realize the first point that I have included for you on your outline there. The first point is this, the glory of Christ, and we can also say the glory of God is revealed in his crucifixion. The glory of Christ and the glory of God is revealed in his crucifixion. Notice again, verse 31, Jesus said, now the son of man is glorified 
and God is glorified in him. Now, remember, Judas has just been sent out from the upper room. Jesus has just dismissed him to go and do what he had purposed in his heart to do, which was to go and to betray Jesus, to report Jesus to the religious authorities, and that would ultimately result in Jesus' crucifixion. Consequently, in light of what Jesus had just done in sending Judas out, when Jesus says that the Son of Man is glorified, he is referring to that crucifixion that is about to happen. And when the challenging part of that, to me, is the fact that Jesus reveals that his glory will be known most clearly in his crucifixion. But that, that revelation would not have been so for those disciples. For them, it would have appeared to be the least glorious thing that could have happened to Christ. In fact, it would have been shameful in their minds and in the minds of anyone who thought of the Messiah as being one who would go to a cross and be crucified on a cross. Yet Jesus says that the cross will be that which brings him praise and which brings him honor and will also be that which magnifies and exalts God the Father. I thought about it, how strange that could have been and, and, and really is to even us today. When we, we might have thought that Jesus would have been the most glorified on the banks of the Jordan River. Right after having come up out of the water, being baptized by John the Baptist, when the dove descended down upon him and the voice of God boomed from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Wouldn't that have been a wonderful place right there for the glory of Christ and the glory of God to have been most known? Or, or maybe we might even think about it having occurred on the Mount of Transfiguration when he was there and when his face just shone like the sun and his garments turned just as white as light and he's flanked by both Moses and Elijah and once again the voice of God comes out of heaven saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. Those would have been two great moments that we could have thought of in which Christ would have been most glorified. But that's not the place. John Brown has written this. He says, when the words, when these words were spoken by Jesus, what was before him were not those events, but rather the deepest humiliation and the severest sufferings, heavy accusations, a condemnatory sentence, insults, infamy, the fellowship of thieves, the agonies of death and the lonely tomb. Brown asked this question, how does Jesus in these circumstances say now? Is the Son of Man glorified? Well, what we can say is that Jesus is glorified by his death on the cross because it was on that cross that he accomplished the greatest work ever recorded in human history. J.M. Boyce has written this. He says, the crucifixion is undoubtedly the central and most significant point of world history. On the cross, Jesus, he reversed the curse that was placed upon humanity because of the sin of Adam. In Romans chapter 5 verse 18, the apostle Paul writes these words. He says, as through one man's offense, and he's speaking of Adam's sin. He says, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's act, his one righteous act, Christ's obedient death on the cross. Paul writes, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. Not only that, but we further recognize that Christ is glorified through his crucifixion because on the cross, Jesus defeated the power of Satan. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 14 and 15 tell us 
that through his death, Jesus destroyed him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and that he released those who from fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So, so Christ is glorified in his crucifixion, but, but so is God the Father. A.W. Pink has noted this, on the cross we behold the brightest manifestation of the glory of God. Every attribute of the deity was supremely magnified at Calvary. His power, his justice, his, his holiness, his faithfulness, his love, all of those attributes of God manifest themselves in Christ's sacrifice on the cross. At Calvary, the glory, the majesty, and the greatness of God the Father and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, are made clearly evident. Earlier, Will and the praise team led us in, in singing the chorus of, of How Great Thou Art. The second, the second verse of that song goes this way. It says, And when I think that God, His Son, not sparing, sent Him to die. Now, stop there for a minute. Those, that, those two lines direct our attention to the greatness of what God the Father has done in sending His Son to be our point of salvation, to send Jesus Christ, His only Son, to do for us what we couldn't do for Himself. But then that verse picks up with what Jesus has did. He says that on the cross, my burdens gladly bearing, He, that is Jesus, bled and died to take away my sin. So God the Father is exalted, but Jesus Christ himself is exalted in his obedience in going to the cross for us, which then just ushers into that chorus of that song that we sing. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. As Jacob Gerber has written, although the cross is foolishness to human wisdom, and it is shame to human pride. And it is weakness to human power. And it is disgrace to human glory. The cross is nevertheless the power of God unto salvation. Jesus will be glorified through it. And his father who sent him to the cross will be glorified. So that's the first way we see that Christ is glorified here. And it brings us to the second point that I want you to note on your outline. And it's what we see as we read this chapter with the lens of the glory of Christ, what we recognize is that the glory of Christ is revealed in his resurrection and his ascension. Here we move from the, the present tense use of the, the verb to glorify to the future tense. Verse 32 begins with a conditional clause that looks back to verse 31 and it's still in the present tense. He says, if God is glorified in him, in other words, if, if God the Father is truly glorified in the Son's obedience and going to the cross, which we know that he is, then Jesus says, then God will also glorify him in, in himself and will glorify him immediately. Boyce goes on to explain the verse this way. He says, if God is glorified by the special nature of, of Christ's death as he is, then he will immediately proceed to place a new and a special glory upon Christ through his resurrection and his exaltation and his ascension to power at the Father's right hand. Now, what, right here, I have to go back and, and point you to perhaps my most favorite passage in all the New Testament. I have to point you back to Philippians 2. 
because it perfectly illustrates exactly what Jesus says here. In, in response to his obedience of going to the cross willingly in order to provide salvation for sinners who place their faith in him, Paul tells us how the Father responded. In Philippians 2 verse 8, he tells us Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. In response to that, verse 9, therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those on earth and of those under the earth and those in heaven, those on earth and those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In other words, the glory of Christ is revealed in his resurrection and in his ascension. But notice, notice that this further glory of which Jesus speaks of here, that, that, that causes him to introduce, it causes him to introduce the subject of, of, of his leaving. And that creates a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety in his disciples. In verse 33, Jesus addresses them tenderly and he says, little children, which is obviously a, a word of endearment. And he tells them, he says, I shall be with you a little while longer. You're going to seek me. But as I said to the Jews, where I'm going, you cannot come. And I'm telling you that now. Now, the fact that this statement created angst and anxiety in, in his disciples is evident by the, the follow-up questions that begin to come. Peter's the first one. And down in verses 36 and 37, we're going to come back to it in a second. But Peter says, Lord, where are you going? Why can we not go with you? And we'll come back to that. But then Thomas later in chapter 14, he says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? They're, They're upset. They're in turmoil over the fact that Jesus has announced that he's going to be leaving them. What they could not understand at this point was that Jesus was referring to the fact that he would go to the cross to bear the weight of their sin, but that God would raise him from the dead and that he would ultimately ascend to the Father's right hand where he would rule and reign until his return. But it it was the thought that Jesus would leave that stirred them up. And as a consequence, everything that Jesus says from this point forward in his farewell discourse has that departure hanging in the background. But here's what we need to recognize. Even though Jesus would be departing and and though where he is going, his disciples cannot go with him. They will be left, nevertheless, with the awesome responsibility of being his witnesses in his absence. In other words, they will be the ones with the responsibility of glorifying Jesus once he has departed. And in verses 34 to 35, Jesus tells them how they will do that. In fact, the third point that you will see there on your outline is this. The glory of Christ is revealed in his disciples' display of self-sacrificial love for one another. The glory of Christ is revealed in the display of his disciples' self-sacrificial love for one another. In light of, in light of his impending Departure, Jesus announces in verses 34 and 35, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Boyce writes this, that with Jesus' departure, the only example of true love that the world had ever known was about to be taken from it. 
How then were men and women to know what true and divine love is? How were they to see love demonstrated when he was about to be taken from them? Well, the answer, the answer is that they were to see it in those who are Christ's disciples. In other words, after his departure, it will be his disciples who will exalt and magnify and praise and glorify Christ. And they will do that through demonstrating the love that Christ has for them in how they love one another. Now, I want you to consider this thought. Certainly, these disciples loved Jesus. I mean, they had left everything to follow him and had done so for the last three years. And in mere moments, Peter is going to assert his loyalty for Christ. He's going to tell Jesus that, that no matter what takes place, he's willing to follow him, even if it were death were in store for him. And that was an ill-advised assertion on Peter's behalf but nevertheless, it was birthed out of a love for Christ. But notice that Jesus, notice what he does not say. He does not say that the world will know that they were his disciples by their love for him. Now, certainly, I think that is assumed in what Jesus says. But the stark reality of his words is that the vertical love that they have for the Lord would be manifested, would be made known to the watching world in the way that they loved one another, horizontally. The horizontal love which we display to our brothers and sisters in Christ is the means, it's the proof of the vertical dimension of love that we have for God the Father and for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we cannot move too quickly past this point because if we do, we'll fail to recognize the convicting nature of this command that Jesus gave at this particular moment. Consider the fact that it was to these same disciples that Jesus uttered these words that just moments earlier they had refused to wash one another's feet. It was these same disciples who had argued among themselves. They were jealous among one another and disputing as to who was going to be the greatest among them. In other words, when these disciples heard this command of Jesus and then looked within themselves, they would have been confronted, quite frankly, with the same truth that you and I are confronted with today. And that is this. It is one thing to love Jesus, but if we're honest, it is something else altogether to love Jesus' disciples. But I want you to know that's not all. In fact, it gets even more convicting. You see, Jesus speaks of this as a new commandment. And the question is, is well, in what sense is it new? I mean, after all, the Old Testament law had commanded that people who were within the covenant community must love their neighbor as themselves. So the command to love obviously was not a new command. What was new was how that love was to be measured. You see, according to Jesus' command, the disciples are not to love simply just another one as they love themselves. Rather, he ratchets things up to a very high level when he says they are to love each other as he had loved them. In other words, as I have loved you, so you are to love one another. Now, consider that based upon that measure of love, Jesus, he would demonstrate that in the next few hours. 
He would demonstrate it by suffering and dying for ungodly sinners who had rejected him in order that, that they might be redeemed from the chains of the sin that had brought him and, 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 and brought into glory. And, and this new measure to which his disciples would now be commanded to love their fellow disciples is what he speaks of here. John himself would pick up on this and he would write about it later in his epistle. First John chapter four, verse 10, he says, and this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. As a result, verse 11, he says, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. This measure of love that Jesus calls us to here, calls his disciples to, is, is the measure that's found in 1 Corinthians 13. Pastor Ted gave us a wonderful devotion of that passage this last week. Listen to how the Apostle Paul describes the standard of love to which Jesus calls us. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 4, he says, Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. This is the standard and the new measure to which Jesus commands his disciples to love one another so that his disciples may be identified with him and so that they may bring glory to him. J.C. Ryle has written this. He says, the immense importance of Christian love cannot possibly be shown more strikingly than the way that it is urged on the disciples in this place. Here, our Lord is our Lord leaving the world and he's speaking for the last time and he's giving his last charge to the disciples. And Ryle goes on to say the very first subject that he takes up and presses on them is the great duty of loving one another and that with no common love, but after the same patient, tender, unwearied manner that he has loved them. As I mentioned Jesus introduces the thought here, and we will come back to it later. Notice that it's loving in the way that he had loved, that he brings upon these disciples. He'll go back later in John chapter 15, verse 12 and 13. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for one friend. So we have seen Christ's glory revealed in his crucifixion, in his resurrection and ascension, and then in his disciples' display of self-sacrificial love for one another. Notice finally with me this morning, the fourth point that I've given you there on your outline is that the glory of Christ is revealed in his loyal love for his disciples in spite of their failures. The glory of Christ is revealed in his loyal love for his disciples in spite of their failures. I mentioned a few moments ago that Peter Peter kind of blew past the whole new commandment and wanted to get back to what Jesus was saying about leaving. He was more interested in the fact that Jesus was about to leave than he was about loving. And so he, he goes on here and he wants to know, where are you going and why can I not follow you? And, and these questions are, are burning upon him. And it's not just him, it's the other disciples as well. But Peter goes on to declare his loyalty for Jesus. He says that he's willing to face whatever will come his way, 
even death, if that's what it took to follow Jesus. And we might well admire Peter's resolve for his obvious love of Christ. But the sad part is, is that Jesus, just as he had known what Judas would do, also knew what Peter would do. Jesus knew that even though Peter's love for him was sincere and it was genuine, he knew that Peter was weak and he knew that in the next few hours, Peter would succumb to his weakness and ultimately deny him three times, cursing and swearing that he never knew the Lord. We looked at Peter's failure in that regard just a couple of months ago. When we were in the Follow Me series, we actually looked at, examined John chapter 21, where Jesus both forgave and restored Peter. And though Peter's loyalty to Jesus failed at the most crucial point, what we came to understand is that Christ's loyal love for Peter never failed. And it's in that that we behold the worthiness and we behold the majesty and the glory of Christ. I would invite you to go back and listen to that sermon again, especially if if you find that Peter's story is unfamiliar to you. For the sake of time this morning, what I want you to note about that whole scenario is this. The glory of Jesus is made evident to us in that we who are his disciples, we fail. We mess up. We fail to love as we should. We fail to live up to the standard that Christ has set for us and commanded us to live. But in all of our failures, in all of our times when we fall, just as Peter did, and by the way, all the rest of the disciples left Jesus alone on that night and dispersed. What we find, though, is that Jesus does not respond to us when those failures come by throwing us away, by grinding us underneath his feet. No. Rather, the glory of Christ is displayed to us through his patient and his long-suffering and his loyal love. In fact, as, as one that I read this week put it, we can go back to those same words of 1 Corinthians 13. And, and because we know that Jesus is the perfect example of love, and because we know that he is the full measure of love that is demonstrated to the world, then, then we can actually take his name and replace it in love there in 1 Corinthians 13. And we can read it this way. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. He does not envy. He does not boast. He is not proud. He does not dishonor others. He is not self-seeking. He is not easily angered. He keeps no record of wrongs. Jesus does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. He always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Jesus never fails. When we see Jesus like that, loving us fully, demonstrating God's love for sinners like you and me by going to Calvary's cross in our place, then we are able to see him in his full majesty and in his full glory. So the glory of Christ is made evident in the cross and and through his resurrection and ascension. It is made evident in the display of the self-sacrificial love that his disciples 
have for one another. And then it is also displayed in the loyal love that Jesus himself continues to show to his disciples when we fail and when we fail miserably. So what all does that mean then? What does that mean for you and me? How do we apply that? Well, I think very clearly it means that the glory of our Savior should be the highest priority of our lives. We who have been saved by his marvelous grace and his mercy, we who count ourselves to be his disciples, we must make it our number one priority in life to exalt him and to magnify his name and to lift him up and to show him as worthy of all honor and all praise. The question is, how do we do that? Well, that leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning. My sermon in a sentence is this. Christ is glorified in our lives when we tell others of his love demonstrated through the cross and the empty tomb. And when we love our brothers and sisters with the same self-sacrificial love. Now, what I want you to know is when you, when you take that and when you begin to chew on that, there's some necessary, there's some necessary self-evaluations that must go along with it. In fact, I believe being able to understand what Jesus is communicating to his disciples here in the upper room and what by necessity is also true for us means that we have to ask ourselves some very difficult questions. Am I loving my brothers and my sisters according to the new measure that Christ commands that I do? Am I loving them the way that he loved me? One way that you can check yourself to see if you are is to take your name and drop it into 1 Corinthians 13. Can you read these words? I am patient. I am kind. I do not envy. I do not boast. I am not proud. I do not dishonor others. I am not self-seeking. I am not easily angered. I keep no record of wrongs. I do not delight in evil, but rejoice with the truth. I always protect. I always trust. I always hope. I always persevere. I never fail. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that passage that way, it confronts me. I'm convicted by how far I am from being able to read that accurately. I'm forced to admit that very often I do not love as Jesus loves. In fact, as one has put it, when confronted with such reality, I realize that I do not even understand such love. But I'm compelled by it. And I'm humbled by it. But the reality is, is that just like Peter, I'm confronted with how often I fail and how often I effectively deny the Lord in the way that I live. Yet, Jesus loves me loyally. <laughs> in spite of my failures, in spite of my shortcomings, as the psalmist declares in Psalm 130, if the Lord were to mark iniquities against us, who of us could stand? 
And the answer to that question is no one. But brothers and sisters, the glory of Christ is revealed in his loyal love for us in spite of our failures. And our hearts should be filled with humility and with gratefulness that there is forgiveness with the Lord. And it is to that forgiveness that I want to point you this morning. You see, it only comes through what Christ accomplished for us on the cross. In his dying in our place, as we've seen, the love of God is most clearly demonstrated in that he, while we were still sinners, he sent the Lord Jesus Christ, his only son, to come and die for us. The glory of Christ and the glory of God come fully clear into our view in the crucifixion of Jesus. But that was not the end. God raised Jesus from the dead so that the power of death might be broken. And for those who will humble themselves before him and who will trust in him, the scriptures declare that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ, then your debt has been paid and your sins have been forgiven. And whenever that good news is shared, then Christ is glorified. So let me ask you this morning very clearly, are you sharing that good news? Are you telling others about the death and the resurrection of Jesus? Are you pointing your family and your friends and your neighbors to the good news that can only be found in Christ? I want you to know telling others about the good news of Christ's love demonstrated through his death and his resurrection And loving your brother and your sister in Christ with that same self-sacrificial love. Well, that is what will bring glory to your Savior. And that should be the goal of every believer. Brothers and sisters, this is yet another lesson from the upper room. And it is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Our Father, how grateful we are for your word and how grateful we are that we can open it and read it. We're grateful for the words of our Lord Jesus here in this passage that bring bring us into an understanding of the great love that he has for us and the love that you have demonstrated through him on the cross. And Lord, the truth of the matter is, is there's not a one of us who could ever stand before you glorying in ourselves and promoting ourselves and exalting ourselves. The truth is when we look inside ourselves, we recognize that there is nothing there worthy of glory save for that which you have done for us. And so, Father, we come before you this morning humble and contrite in confession of our sins where we have failed to honor you in loving our brothers and sisters as we should and asking for your forgiveness, asking for you to restore us. We pray that you would do that so that you might continue to be glorified and magnified in our lives. And I pray that we also, that as we take into consideration all that Jesus says here and as we continue to move forward in these lessons that he teaches from this upper room, that we would apply them to our lives, 
that we would let your Holy Spirit do his work of bringing conviction in us and that we would allow your Holy Spirit to bring us the power to live the life that you have called us to live. So I pray that you would continue to change us and conform us for your glory and for your honor. Father, there may be those who are listening today who have never come to know you as their Lord and Savior. Maybe they've heard about the things that are there. Maybe they've heard about Jesus, but they've never come to a point where they've confessed their sins and made you Lord of their life. My prayer is that today that your Holy Spirit might bring conviction into their lives. I pray that they would take that step of obedience and following you and committing themselves to you. I pray these things in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen.